You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Toronto, Ontario, August 1978. A man known only as Ernest is searching for a lost kitten he believes has fallen into a sewer. But instead of a kitten, he encounters what can only be described as a monster. After telling a few friends about the incident, Ernest was contacted by a Toronto area newspaper. As the newspaper investigated his story, the reporter found buried animal remains and a small chamber that could have been the monster's lair. The evidence documented in the article was so alarming, Toronto's sewer department thoroughly inspected the city's entire tunnel system out of fear that whatever was down there may go after children. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. The audio clip you heard at the intro was from the 2010 TV show Freak Encounters, a monster show that specialized in giving genuine legends the sort of candid camera treatment by pranking unsuspecting people after priming them and putting them in scary situations. The Toronto Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster is not a well-known creature, yet it fits many of the patterns that we've talked about on this show. One wonders why some monsters become viral sensations, while others end up as deep cuts to discuss around the cold cuts at monster parties. I don't have a good answer to that, other than the somewhat tautological assertion that stories that spread the best are the stories that get written up and repeated the most, which really tells us nothing useful. But Jeff Dupuy has joined us today to bring us the story of the Toronto Cabbage Town Tunnel Creature, a strange one-off tale of a monster sighting that checks all the boxes for a monster flap, yet never quite took off. Monster Dog. 
I was not able to dig up an extensive bio for you. So who, for our listeners, who is Jeff Dupuy? Uh, I'm the author of the Creature X novels from Dundurn Press, which are a series of um, skeptical cryptozoological murder mysteries. Mm. Uh, so there are three novels in that collection. Uh, I'm also an editor. Uh, I'm, right now I'm editing an anthology called Devouring Tomorrow, which is about how technology, climate change, um, pollinator die-offs, how that is going to change what we eat and the ramifications that'll have on human culture. Wow. Interesting. So it's a, it's a collection of short stories where various um, Canadian literary writers, not so much sci-fi writers, but literary writers um, explore that. Uh, and we brought you on to talk about a curious story. And I will have to admit that I'd never heard of this before, but the, the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster. So it's a legend that, uh, Blake, had you heard of this before? I'm really curious about it. It's an interesting article, which we'll link to in the show notes. I don't know why there was a weird gap there. And it's also, I have all these questions about, because I had heard, what I had heard was that Toronto has lots of tunnels because during the winter, it's very unpleasant to walk out in the snow and ice and that they have like ways that you can get around the city through tunnels. So this this story I loosely in my head merged nicely with the article, but I don't know what's real and what's not. Please enlighten me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could we get an overview of the, the legend? Certainly. So the story goes that in August of 1978, in a part of the city called Cabbage Town, which is the kind of eastern corner of downtown, um, there was a man named Ernest who's 51 years old who lived in an apartment building out there, and he was taking care of a litter of kittens. And one of the kittens went missing, and so he was poking around his building where there was a tunnel that was part of a passage that apparently used to lead to the street, but construction had altered it, so it really went nowhere. And he decided to climb down and look um, for the kitten. And he went down with a flashlight and he poked his head in and no more than 10 feet in front of him was what he describes as a creature with glowing red-orange eyes that weighed about 30 pounds, he estimates, about three feet long, that looked like an ape, like a monkey with slate gray fur and uh, very visible teeth, prominent, scary teeth. Hmm. And... He shone his light on this creature and it said to him in a in a hissing voice, go away, go away. And then it took off down another tunnel that branched off from this main tunnel. Um, and it ran off and he never saw it again. And he didn't really talk about it outside of his wife uh, and some friends and family. And then a About eight months later, in March of 1979, uh, a reporter from the Toronto Sun, uh, who is now a very prominent journalist uh, in Toronto, but at the time he was a cub reporter. He'd only been reporting for about a year. He heard of this story. His name's Laurie Goldstein. He heard of Ernest's story and went to speak to him uh, about his encounter. And then the two of them went and investigated the tunnel where this took place but 
during the winter sometime, the concrete slab at the mouth of the tunnel, the attic of the tunnel collapsed. So nobody, no human could fit in because it wasn't a very large passage to begin with. Oh, no. Um, so that's pretty much where the story officially ends. That's the genesis of, of this legend. Okay. Well, as soon as you talked about kittens, missing kittens, I started thinking serial killer. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, have there been any other sightings of this monster? So there haven't been what I would consider, uh, I mean, official, I'm using figure quotes here, right. sightings. There have been people who have tried to link other sightings they've had to this. Ah, okay. um, there was a book that came out in 1990 by somebody who only reveals himself as being Commander X, uh, where he talks about underground alien bases. And in his book, he talked about an encounter he had on the street of Toronto in, in a nearby neighborhood at four in the morning of a a creature that he somehow likens to being part of what he thinks of as this underground community of creatures that I guess we have up here. But uh, but really, there is only that one purist sighting. And that's what I find so fascinating about this story as a legend that is continuing to evolve, that you only have one source kind of story. Um, and then yeah. watching how it changes and how it's branched off down what I consider kind of two separate sort of paths, uh, I find very fascinating. Well, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, the story, the initial news story, is this sort of like one data point, but mm -hmm. you must be encountering oral versions in other places. So, can you talk a little bit about what are the other versions out there, and, and how is the folklore developed over time? I would say there are sort of three branches to the story. Uh, the one I sort of hinted at from the book by Commander X that there's an underground city, possibly extraterrestrial, underneath Toronto. And this is where the Cabbage Town story has sort of merged with another um, urban legend that we have, uh, that th there's an intersection in Toronto, Church and Girard, which is not too far, about uh, just under two kilometers from roughly where the monster was spotted, that there's an urban legend that there's something underneath that part of the city that causes abnormal behavior and abnormal mechanical failures um, on the surface around that intersection. So these two stories have combined in certain kind of UFO sources on, on Reddit threads, uh, various parts of the dark corners of the internet. And so now you have this idea that Toronto has underground alien bases or underground ancient cities with advanced technology. That's the most far-flung, I feel, sort of branch of, of where this story has kind of diverted. Another one that I find very interesting is the idea that this creature uh, that Ernest witnessed was what... Uh, certain indigenous cultures in the area call uh, Memaguezi, which is a spirit that hangs out on riverbanks and is child-sized, uh, covered in fur, that is usually a, a benevolent kind of creature. But I, I find that very fascinating. Uh, the way we've seen Sasquatch su su supposedly lend credibility to Bigfoot sightings, 
I've always found the appropriation of indigenous culture to kind of cryptozoological thinking to be fascinating because when you don't have any kind of precedent for what you've seen, it's very easy to jump into the folklore of the surrounding area. And uh, Toronto is, we have dozens at least of creeks and rivers that have been built over in the last century and a half. So if you look at a lot of cryptozoological websites, or I should say the handful that talk about the Toronto or the Cabochon Tunnel Monster, there's an association now being drawn that perhaps this tunnel was formerly a river and therefore that the habitat of the Memaguezi. I do want to ask a bit more about the, the tunnels because uh, I've heard lots of legends about tunnels under various cities in the United States, whether it's St. Louis uh, here in Denver, there are there's a set of secret tunnels that supposedly date back to the 1800s and which were used to move liquor during Prohibition. Do we know much about the tunnels in this area and uh, why they were created or the story behind them? Well, that's an interesting facet because this doesn't seem to be related to either a buried river or any kind of tunnel commonly in use. Now, because Ernest refused to say specifically, we know what street he lived on, but it's a very long street, about a kilometer and a half in that, just that Cabbage Town neighborhood. Because he didn't want to give too much away about who he was or where he lived, we don't know specifically what the tunnel was. Now, in the original news story, the writer, Lori Goldstein, spoke to some sewer workers who said it looked like, because they had to investigate it in case a kid might crawl into it. Mm. Um, it looked like it was just caused by erosion and poor drainage, because this is also a very old part of town. So you could have had water flowing and just kind of carving out this tunnel. Because we can't look at it, we don't know how big it even was. Um, perhaps it wasn't as impressive as described, in the article and that that's kind of a subject of exaggeration. It is peculiar that it talks though. That that's, that's an unusual feature for, yeah, you know, for yeah. little monsters. Uh, and <laughs> well, well that it talks, I guess sometimes they have their own language, but. Well, and it's reminding me, you know, it's got the sort of that, you know, Jeff, the talking mongoose, but it's, I mean, it's just saying, get away. You know, it's not saying anything uh, creepy. I mean, what, there is something creepy about seeing a small hairy humanoid in a tunnel, but I mean, yeah. it's not, it's not, it's not in, it's not an incantation or a threat. It's just, you know, go away. <laughs> it's like, get out. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, and that's what I think has led to some of the interesting ways this has branched off. Because you can't, it, it doesn't follow your typical cryptid. It does behavior. not, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I find it fascinating that we haven't seen it build in that direction. There's no um, unknown primate of East Toronto kind of conversations or subterranean primate. We're not hearing that. Nobody's trying to, or at least in, in my encounters, nobody's trying to make a scientific background. The closest to it is. Um, there was a series on Animal Planet uh, called Freak Encounters. This was around 2010. Okay. And so there's a 2010 episode that did a, a two-minute segment on the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster. And they really swung for the fences in terms of the the ominous music, the ominous pictures of unrelated tunnels they showed, the wild animal noises, 
um, you know, that ferocious kind of cat attacking sort of noise, big cat attacking sort of yeah, noise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and they talked about it. Uh, th- they had one interview. So it was just two minutes of narration and one interview where they spoke to um, a, kind of a famous character around Toronto who was a Satanist and the director of an organization called the Occult Research Bureau, which I don't think exists anymore. And they basically, they just leaned in to the idea that this is a wild animal and it's an animal that can tear you apart. So as I mentioned earlier, the article, the original news article mentions how the tunnel mouth collapsed sometime between uh, August of 78 and March of 79. Well, of course, when they're interviewing uh, Salako Kalfu, the, the Satanist I was mentioning, he mentions that well, what if the monster itself tore this concrete slab down? And if he can do that, then he can rip somebody apart with his bare hands. And just really leading into this idea of, oh, it's a wild animal, monstrous, stay away. And then, of course, the narration of the show goes on to say that pets and people have continued to disappear around tunnels and sewers throughout the city. And of, of course, that, that's true of every city you can potentially say that somebody loses their pet when it mm. just wanders about. If it was a wild animal, had there been any theories as to what kind of animal it was, if it wasn't a monster, if it was a, a real creature? So as skeptics uh, who I've discussed this with, a raccoon would be the most obvious thing. Ooh, that's a good Toronto. one. Yeah, I, yeah, they I do. can see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it, it also has the glowing eyes. Because most primates don't have uh, the eye shine that's sort of described in the story. I, I mean, I know eye shine isn't typically red, glowing red, orange. But if we're trying to look at Ernest's account as being 100% factual uh, up until the go away, go away part, I would say, okay, he encountered some kind of eye shine. I assume if... Flat, the flashlight he had was anything like the flashlights I had a kid in, as a kid in the 80s. Probably not very good. So it might be a very muted kind of eye shine. I don't know. Um, so what's most likely to be in a tunnel in the city of Toronto that can sort of resemble a primate? I know raccoons, when they're on all fours, don't resemble a primate. But when you see one, uh, I can recall giving one an Oreo cookie as a kid and it sat up. And ate it like a sandwich. Yes, uh, because they have hands. With <laughs> Their hands look like little little human. Yes, like little people yeah. hands. Yeah, <laughs> and you know they're up to no good with those Creepy. bandit masks on. So, yep, giveaway. Yeah, sewer workers interviewed for the original story did comment that in their experience they had seen beavers and raccoons move into storm drains and tunnels and and sewers that sort of thing. So it's not at sure. all out of the ordinary. Again, yeah. up until the point that it spoke to him, which I don't think there's a skeptical, reasonable explanation, unless unless it was a child that he encountered there uh, that wanted him to go away. That's the only explanation for the voice I can think of. The other thing could be if he heard the voice in the real world, it could have been a mechanical sound or a natural sound that sounded like yes. "get out." I mean, that's, yeah, that it's a. Uh, that's that's it's not an elaborate speech. It's like two sounds repeated. That's not you know crazy. That what he, you'd expect to hear. Too, yeah, but yeah. And he <laughs> yeah. could be hearing in his head, "Get out, get out." There's a little yes, hairy man yes, staring at yes. you. There's a lot of things, you know. Yeah. But well, I, and with a hissing voice, it's like who knows what that sound? Yeah, yeah, uh, could have been. 
I mean, that's a good point. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, if you go on YouTube, uh, why would you? But people do. Uh, <laughs> you could go on there and you could look for dogs that talk, and there's all these animal sounds that sound like speech, but they're not, but they sound like exactly. it. You know, and it's, it's a, oh yeah. So, and again, that's uh, we're uh, always approaching with the presumption of sincerity about these stories, right? Um, but there's so this pattern. I mean, this is a this is a classic. One encounter becomes an urban legend. That's it's really interesting that it's still out there being talked about as a real thing you might encounter. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it pulled from the Mimigwesi, uh Algonquin tradition that I think we talked about that in the um, earlier in the um, Exorcist Effect two parter. Uh, this idea of uh, sort of narrative anchoring or plausibility anchoring. This idea that. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until that terminology, I'd been thinking of it as just anchoring it in the, the in antiquity. But the, this is not something new that's appeared from nowhere. This is part of a long tradition. You just have to look back further to see <laughs> the connectedness. And of course, um, what that does, as you mentioned, is it basically takes uh, native cultural folklore and then tries to reappropriate it to, you know, for your urban legend or urban moment of, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. this this story's got it all as far as following that pattern, you know. And it was apparently very – it was a very popular story at the time. I have since spoke to the man who wrote it 44 years later. And uh, he got calls from the National Enquirer. Uh, he got lots of letters every day about this. Uh, but it was – I thought it fascinating that nobody came to him with similar stories. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it too. Unique. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned earlier that uh, a book had talked about a alien theory or a UFO connection of some kind. Uh, Could you elaborate on that a little bit? So yes, the book underground alien bases has a, a segment about Canada and focuses a lot in Toronto. And again, we're seeing, this merger of stories. So a book had come out a, a couple years before the encounter called the Great Lakes Triangle. For, I believe that was Jay Gourley in 1977. Mm-hmm. And it posited that, you know, a lot of UFO activity where the UFOs apparently don't disappear up into the sky, but go down into the water in, mm-hmm. in this area means that there are bases here. So mm-hmm. this, story this new story of Ernest and this creature had been kind of existing on its own and then merged in with not only the underground alien bases idea or the Great Lakes Triangle idea, but then also what I had mentioned before, this idea that there's something going on beneath East Toronto. And they kind of just culminate into this idea that, oh, it must be true because all of these sources now are kind of building on it. But as we know, if we're trying to make an academic argument, that doesn't hold water. Right. Yeah. The, in Commander X and the idea of underground bases, but both those are interesting because the underground base idea is popular in UFO culture, especially uh, around uh, Dulce. Uh, I've heard stories of uh, secret tunnels that connect major cities so that, you know, the president can get around underground after the war, you know, the war. Or the event. <laughs> um, but in Commander X, I know there are a couple of people who've gone by that moniker, but there's also like a writing. Let's go down a little side rabbit hole here and talk about Commander X for just a moment. When people use pseudonyms, it can be tricky to figure out exactly who they are. 
which is the point. Whether to protect oneself from persecution, prosecution, or just scrutiny, pseudonyms have a long history in the world of whistleblowing, but also in conspiracy theory. I'm reminded of weird moments such as the famous signal intrusion of Captain Midnight into the TVs of HBO viewers in the mid-1980s. But the name Commander X needs some disambiguation, even if we don't have time to get into speculation about who exactly was behind the name. There are two very distinct figures in American culture that are associated with the Commander X moniker. The latter, and more recent, is the figure of a hacking culture character closely associated with the cyber activist group Anonymous. That person is alleged to be Christopher Doyan, a formerly homeless man who is accused of participating in the work of Anonymous and eventually had fled the country before being, um, let's just call it repatriated, but that's its own story. You can check that out in the show notes. But the hacker is not the same guy as Commander X in the UFO community. This gets complicated because, like some of the famous sci-fi writers' house names that were actually a stable of writers, Commander X in the UFO conspiracy world has been associated with multiple authors. The most probable candidate of these many authors is Timothy Green Beckley, who passed away in 2020. He was a prolific writer in the UFO and conspiracy field, and many think that he was responsible for at least some of the writing of that Commander X. Again, check the show notes for more details on both of these characters. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. That whole Commander X persona seems to be tied to some pretty wacky conspiracy stuff. 
Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, that's the kind of thing we like to look into because these stories, <laughs> even whether they're true or they're not, they are popular and they, they fire the imagination of readers and they make people mm-hmm. want to riff on them and tell their own stories. So the fact that people are still telling the story of this monster and this tunnel, but the tunnel's basically nothing and the monster only has this one sighting is pretty mm-hmm. interesting. I, I find it interesting in the lack of uh, – sort of riffing or versioning that's going on. You know, I, I like normally... Yeah, and that it's still stuck around. Yeah. So it's like this one incident, and it's being retold, but it's not... And here's three other sightings, or here's some more information about the nature of the monster. So it's almost like by its absence, uh, that peculiar absence of these these sort of things is... is uh, and I wouldn't say unique, but uh, it's a, a distinguishing feature. Well, there are little, very little mention. I can't find really any mention aside from Commander X of this story before the internet age. Yeah. So before the pro, uh, mm. proliferation of sites talking about cryptids and urban legends, so it didn't seem to really catch on. Um, and also, I think Ernest's reluctance to give his last name to do TV or radio interviews that also helped. Um, I think limit the spread of it in the sense that you didn't have these kind of copycat sightings mm, mm-hmm. right, when something right. gets a lot of mass media attention. And that, that is to me, I mean, I find this story so fascinating because it's the one encounter and then to see mm-hmm. how far it can kind of turn into either underground alien bases or mm-hmm. indigenous legends or just a, a wild animal that again, when I'm mentioning the freak encounters episode, they don't mention the talking because the talking is not scary. <laughs> um, when you say go away it's like it, it sounds like you don't want to rend somebody limb from limb which is what they were going for yeah right yeah but when i when i think of that i do think of typical uh evp messages it's going to be something short and clipped like that that's the the kind of uh, thing that people claim that they hear uh when they're recording evps but Jeff, so given the enduring nature of this legend that it's it's really stuck around and it's proliferated with the uh, advent of the, the internet, how do you see this story of the Cabbage Town Tunnel monster evolving in the future, if at all? Yeah, I, I kind of feel it might not if we don't see anything else added to it, if there aren't more sightings. I, I sort of almost think that it is a relic of the pre-internet sort of age I don't think you have too many believers except those who are really far off in the kind of supernatural um, because it doesn't have that credibility as potentially being an animal. Like we don't think right. that there's an un- unknown ape there. Right. So I, I I kind of hope it actually doesn't evolve. It, it, it makes it a nice sort of, I know urban legend, I don't think is the proper term, but it's, it's a nice piece of lore um, mm-hmm. rooted in one place that says a lot more about the time and of course the publication that that published the article the toronto sun is something of a tabloid um well it is quite a tabloid. it is a tabloid there you go uh, <laughs> it says a lot they don't cover you know ufo stories it's not the weekly world news sort of thing but it is the kind of uh right-leaning more sports-oriented paper that uh you know, features the, like, has a sunshine girl somewhere. I was about to it. say, is there a page three kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is that. And, I mean, it is it is very popular, uh, sadly. But, uh, 
Well, well I mean, it, it, papers have to. I mean, it, it, the the journalism has a struggle right now, and so you know, uh, the fact that they've been able to maintain lowest common denominator since the seventies actually speaks to something, I guess. <laughs> what they do, they do well. They they rage farm a little bit. Uh, a lot of culture war related stories, and uh, like I said, great. They're known for their sports coverage, so. Um, not that we're currently known for a city that has sports teams worth covering, but you know, we have our moments only covered with tunnels, only covered with tunnels. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, yeah, I am trying to, I, I haven't given up now the, the writer of the original article, Lori Goldstein refuses to give me any clues as to Ernest's true identity or give me the location of the uh, site because he made a promise and I, and I respect that. But I haven't given up. I do want to. I am content to kind of dig into this more, um, and hopefully we can find what kind of tunnel system because now it's it's a lot easier to access any city records uh, so, of that sort of thing. And Ernest is only just a little over a hundred now, so uh, you know what. <laughs> It, it is a little morbid of me, but I am the guy who's like, okay, I can tell when he's born yeah. because of his age. I know what his spouse's name is. I'm just going to look through the obituaries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, there's no way he's still around. Right. Just, or, I mean, like, good for him if he is. I mean, all power to him. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, if, if that encounter caused him to have perpetual youth, he probably would want to keep that on the DL. But yeah. <laughs> if that's where the, the fountain of youth is under an apartment building in Cabbage Town, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Well, Jeff, after all this work that you've done, what's your personal stance on this legend? See, that's that's tough. I don't want to call Ernest a liar. Um, and he's uh, Laurie Goldstein really just stressed to me how honest the man seemed um how okay never mind i was about to say how earnest he seemed but that is, <laughs> that is blake's territory 100 percent earnest 100 percent earnest um very frank yes and uh so if he saw what he thought he saw uh, again i'm gonna lean towards either a raccoon or I, I wouldn't want it to be a child playing in these tunnels, but that's the only thing that I yeah. think might, if somebody actually spoke to him, but as you a guys, reasonable put it, theory. Yeah. Um, it could have just been what he thought he'd hear given the noises down there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I don't think that he saw a monster that spoke to him. Let me clarify one thing. So you, when, when the reporter Lori and Ernest went back, the tunnel had already collapsed or was that later? The tunnel had already collapsed. So, so they, but nobody has suggested that maybe the little creature was warning him to get out before the collapse. Oh, there's a story. Because that would actually be more akin <laughs> to things like the Tommy knockers, which, you know, mm -hmm. tunnel spirits that do try to warn you uh, about dangers of being in the subterranean realm. Exactly. And then there's yeah. the, the Mothman Association, too, of a sighting before yeah. some kind of calamity. Yeah. An omen or a purpose. Mm hmm. I, I feel like you're building this up more than time. Uh oh, well, <laughs> no, no. I'm just uh, the narrative possibilities are interesting, and I'm actually, again, I'm actually more fascinated um, if you only look at the legends that do have a lot of um, variations and sort of uh, species, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, then you're miss. You would be committing. Uh, you would be doing selection bias because some of these are definitely fall into that urban legend or peculiar story realm but don't necessarily 
become widespread. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. not everything has that mimetic uh, stickiness, you know. So that 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 is yeah. also of interest. So that there are those kinds of stories that are everywhere, but then there are these these weird one offs, and you know, in some ways yeah. they feel more credible because it doesn't take off as a well. Of course, everybody knows about True. that. You know? So I don't True. know. I think it's worth covering, and I appreciate you yeah. taking the time to write this thoughtful article and to talk to us about it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Like I, I said earlier, this is uh, this this podcast of yours has been a huge inspiration to me. Not only my novels, but this piece and the other writing I do for the Superstitious Times. Well, so I, th- thank I thank you, you so for much. the work you guys do. We appreciate it very thank much. You. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking too that Cabbage Town. There's something kind of cute about it. A little innocuous. <laughs> it, well, that, we we have one in Atlanta. We have a, a whole region called. And it, you know what? There's three different stories for why it's called Cabbage Town. I don't believe any of them. I say, <laughs> why, are they, why is it called Cabbage Town in Atlanta? Like, what are the theories put out there? Like, um, I can imagine. Well, the, w- w- well, the first one is that the uh, mill there was a train wreck or a truck wreck, and it spilled out cabbages. And in that area, everybody went out and grabbed the free cabbages. The second was that the the mill workers are uh, Scotch Irish and were growing cabbages in their front yards, and so the community smelled like cabbages. And the third was that there was a popular, uh, uh, what do you call it, a a farmer's market in the region, and they brought all kinds of things to the farmer's market, but ultimately only cabbages really sold, so they started exclusively selling cabbages at the farmer's market. That story makes no sense. None of these stories really make sense to me, uh, but those are the three stories that I've heard. Uh, I don't believe any of them. Okay, okay, that's that's fascinating because your second story is reportedly why our cabbage town is called Cabbage Town because it was home to Irish immigrants who uh-huh. used what little yardage they had to grow cabbages because it was a hardy enough vegetable um that they liked that they could grow in what limited space they had. Uh I don't know if that's true either and it seems perhaps just a little discriminatory yes like there you go there you go that's what i think exactly i think the real answer is it's making fun of the irish that's what i really think is going on (laughs) maybe yeah but it certainly sounds like a an urban legend that's transported Mm -hmm. well we didn't really uh get too deep into this but i I was going to mention that too um the intersection i mentioned earlier where there's supported supposedly weird electromagnetic phenomenon and you know, a city beneath it. That is at the the kind of the southern end of uh, our what Toronto's what is considered Toronto's gay village, and it's also been home to a lot of more um, kind of I don't want to say artsy type people, but you have people that you can see being made fun of uh, in conspiracy mm-hmm. circles. So uh, that was just something that I was thinking upon doing this research that it's like, it's, it's weird that we're not giving names or making these legends about, you know, more affluent neighborhoods with more white Anglo Saxon Protestant type. Really good point. That's a really good point. Jeff, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. This is a really interesting little story. And since this is your first time on the show, we have to ask you our signature question. And that is what's your favorite monster? Uh, I will say that, I actually lost sleep last night thinking about this. Because I knew you would ask. <laughs> it's an important and, question. <laughs> and how do you, well, how do you pick a favorite when you lead lives yeah. like we do? It's uh, but, Sophie's choice every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I'm going to have to say Cressy is my favorite monster. Okay. So no, that's we've not done a dedicated Cressy episode, so please, we, please. we have not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a lake monster out in uh, Newfoundland, so not too far from where my father used to live when he was living out there, and it is a massive eel um, that people have seen for about a century, and again, they have merged it with the local indigenous legends of you know pond devils. Uh, that supposedly live out there. But this is really just, it's just a big eel. And it's my favorite because, uh, and I, my second book, Lake Crescent, is about the lake where that, it's it's set in that area. Um, and what's fascinating about it is it's the cryptid that if I thought one could have actually been there, that would be it. Like that would be the real monster that I think might be out there. This idea that perhaps an ocean, uh, because this lake does connect to the Atlantic, so if you had right. a conger eel or something larger than the typical eels you find there um, getting stuck in that lake somehow, it would obviously appear larger than the eels the residents are used to. It would look mm-hmm. – uh, and everything looks bigger in water or everything – you can't get a sense of it. You can't get a sense of scale. And when you're scared, <laughs> aquatic creatures tend to look larger. And that to me just seemed – like. Again, finger quotes here. Plausible. Yeah. <laughs> so I've always, I've always appreciated that about the monster, and that it doesn't, it's not tied to young Earth creationist belief or anything like that. It's just sort of, again, I guess I love one-off monsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, sure. I love it, how you. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I love how he cut to the chase and said it's an eel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but a giant eel, you know, it's like I, it's one of those. It's it's not biologically implausible, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. It will shock no one to hear that I'm skeptical, but it. it <laughs> <laughs> At well, least you know it's it's not you know it, there are animals that match the description, and there is a real lake. So the big issue is is the thing that matches the description in the lake. That's. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, and now I should state to to be hyper skeptical. There, it was a uh, a logging route for a long time, so anything okay. that looks, you know, you look into the water, you see a log that you don't expect to be there because it's partially submerged. That could very easily be misidentified. Um, but I like the idea that if you have something that is say you're not expecting it to be to see an eel that's say eight feet long and you're scared in your head, that's twenty feet long. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, a that that is a that whole how you can misperceive size based on the importance of the thing is. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And also lifespan. It needs to be an animal that can live that like long enough that multiple that like one or two generations can see it without a breeding population. That's tricky, tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's one for us to cover in future. It is. It is. For sure. But anyway, thank you so much, Jeff. We'll put links yeah. to both this story and to your books in the show notes so people can check all that out. And uh, thanks for uh, reaching out to us. And uh, I, I don't get to say hey to Carl, but thank Carl, you. if you're listening, hey, Carl, thanks for the suggestion. So, yeah. <laughs> and thank you so much That's for so having fun. me again. It's It's been such an honor. Cool. Thanks, well, Jeff. I hope that it has in no way diminished your joy from listening to the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, aside from not wanting to hear my own voice. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The back catalog that uh, I don't need to listen to my own episode. I understand that feeling, too. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird thing, isn't it? It, it totally is. That. Monster Dog.
You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with author Jeff Dupuy about his research into the Toronto Tunnel Monster of Cabbage Town. You can find a link to Jeff's article as well as his Cryptid Themes novels in our show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Monster House presentation.